It takes a lot of hard work to make it look easy. This Mother's Day, Duluth Trading Co. can help you give her something that keeps up. Whether you prefer to shop online or in-store, Duluth has a motherload of gear, goods, and gifts to keep her comfortable and capable, no matter what needs doing. With Duluth's problem-solving details and legendary durability to boot, you'll finally be mom's favorite again. Check out DuluthTrading.com for all your Mother's Day gifting needs. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. Hello, and welcome to the BBC Gardener's World magazine podcast, brought to you by the team here at the magazine. Join us as we chat all things gardening with the nation's favourite experts. Has your relationship with the garden changed in the past year? It's likely you've spent more time in it, watching wildlife close up and raising your own healthy, fresh food. If so, you're not alone, and this first-hand connection with nature is influencing how we garden today, persuading many gardeners to look for a more natural approach to how they grow. Hello, I'm Lucy, and to explore today's theme of organic gardening, I'm talking to Monty Don, lead presenter of Gardener's World and a committed organic gardener for over 30 years. He shares with us why he thinks organic growing is much easier than you might think, and is the approach to gardening that's kindest to our health as well as to the wider environment. So I started by asking him, what is organic gardening? You could say it's working with nature, not against it. And that's partly true, but it's by no means all the truth. Uh, it doesn't tell you much about it. It's much easier to say what it isn't than what it is. Uh, and that tends to happen. But but the problem with that, of course, is it sounds punitive. You know, you mustn't do this and you mustn't do that and you mustn't do this. And and, and actually, so, so let's, I'm, I'm going to answer your question, but not in the manner you want. So there is no easy answer. This is something that is um, a process rather than a creed or a belief. It's not like not eating meat or not doing this. Because the whole thing about organic gardening is taking the line of least resistance, doing the thing that most naturally wants to happen. And it's based upon, and the same with agriculture, that, that nature doesn't need man. 
Nature is organic. So as soon as we get involved, be it making a garden or making a farm or, or, or cutting the grass, anything like that, we are going against nature. We're doing something unnatural. And that then leads to a kind of slippery slope of that we need to, we are always fighting nature. We are always fending nature off our gardens because if we leave them alone, they're going to ruin things. Now, organic gardening says that is completely the wrong way of looking at things, is that nature is not the enemy. And there are, there are two good th- reasons to work with that. Is One, because actually you can make a beautiful garden entirely working with the natural world. But also you'll always lose. Man always, always loses the battle with nature. It might take a few years. You know, you can spray every bug going in the world, but then there are knock-on effects that are actually more harmful than the original bugs were. So you have to use more spray, and so it goes. Uh, So the first thing is your stance you take, the starting point is, I'm going to work with nature in any way I can. Uh, But I'm going to do it when I'm doing something unnatural. So we have a slight tension there, a slight dichotomy, and and that's where the gardener comes in. That's your role as the gardener, is how do I manage this? How do I play this contradiction? You know, I want a beautiful lawn, but I don't want to use weed killer or moss killer. Uh, I want to have really lovely, delicious vegetables, but I don't want them eaten by aphids or slugs or snails. And aphids and slugs and snails exist. So the organic garden sets out to balance predator and prey within the role of an unnatural garden. In the wild, it's a much more ruthless process. It may well be that uh, something is wiped out. It may well be that certain plants can't grow because there is a predator that just eats them as soon as they appear. Anybody who's ever tried to plant trees where there are deer know that, that either the deer go or the trees go. The two cannot exist side by side without interference because deer will eat them all. And, and there are lots of instances like that. People have been debating this as a, as a subject, as an approach, as a, as a philosophy or a creed, mm. as you called it, because I think it was yeah. a creed. I mean, let's, let's go was. back a little bit yeah. to, yeah. you know, funny enough, before this, I got my old copy of Jeff Hamilton's Organic Gardening book right. out. Very first yeah. book I ever, gardening book I ever bought. And uh, from 1987, I think it was. And uh, there he is saying, you know, you either believe this or you believe that. It's really yeah. hard for a middle way. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think that's even changed? You know, take us back to when you first became well, aware of okay. organics. Well, uh, okay, I'll, I'll actually. Well, my first introduction to organics um, was predated Jeff Hamilton. It was in the seventies uh, when Jeff was but a boy, not quite. But uh, <laughs> when I was certainly young, I was. I came to organics because I worked on a farm when I was sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen for about five years started off in the summer holidays and and then do a bit more. And then I spent one two-year period after I left school working on a farm that was about as aggressively unorganic as it could be. And all my gut instincts were this was wrong. This, This was not helpful. My sort of journey towards organic gardening was a visceral response to what I just felt was wrong. Having grown up in the countryside and, and, you know, it was very important to me. I had a real... I spent a lot of time just walking the dog, looking at flowers, looking at birds and in the woods and in the fields, as well as working the land. I did that from a very early age. Um, also, I was always a hopeless chemist. 
I didn't like using chemicals. I wasn't very good at it. I just, you know, just, I always rather not because in the same way that, you know, some people rather not take medicines because it's it's too much of a thing. And Um, and yet it was part of that, uh, how you gardened at that time. The whole, I mean, we can, it's worth, we've got time just to go back a bit. Hmm. British gardening evolved uh, as a sort of social activity that was available to amateurs and professionals combined, really started, kicked in in the early 19th century. Before that, it was either completely practical, what we would call cottage gardening, in other words, people just growing some food and maybe the odd bit of flowers in there for whatever, or it was the preserve of those who were wealthy enough to employ a gardener and had land. It was not something that was that, that has become since, which was this, this national amateur pastime. That evolved really in the early 19th century, people like Loudon, people who, the, 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 the rise of the suburb, suburbs and, and gardens in cities, a middle class that had gardens for the first time. Before that, it was either um, the preserve of, of, of the sort of rural middle class or, or, or people who have money. <laughs> and the Victorian obsession with... Basically, it was it was a sort of dynamic energy that you conquered things. You conquered the world. You conquered nature. You conquered making steel. You conquered chemistry. And so the garden became a playground for that. And all the time, plants were coming in from all over the world that didn't want to grow in our environment. Now, initially, they, they were, as we all know about the history of gardening, things like camellias were always grown in, in glasshouses. Uh, and gradually people found they could move them out. But there were problems. They were, they were prey to diseases. They bought diseases with them. They had pests that we, we didn't have. So they had to be managed. And, and parallel to this, the profession of the head gardener and the army of gardeners that the large house has um, institutionalized process. They institutionalized this management of nature. So if you were a good gardener, you... You knew how to use nicotine uh, as part of it. As, as chemicals were developed, you, mastering them became part of your repertoire and armory of measurable skills. And, and you and I know, even in our lifetime, as we learned, right up to the 80s and even 90s, that was the case. You went and did a course at many of the very honourable and good courses, whether you know in Scotland and in England, and part of the curriculum was using chemicals. And if you couldn't use chemicals, it was because you weren't good enough. You didn't know how to do it. So it all became institutionalized about concrete nature. Now, when I arrived on the scene uh, as, as somebody who, who came to gardening very young, but but very much as an outsider and as an amateur, I, I didn't do a course, I didn't know anyone else who gardened, blah, 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 blah. Um, I just didn't feel part of that. I just didn't, I just didn't buy into that at all because it hadn't come through to me through a series of courses. I didn't have to pass any exams in it. <laughs> I started reading uh, works that were written very much in the 30s and 40s and 50s, which, as you say, were almost cult. It was, it was a reaction against this huge drive to mechanise and, and chemicalise farming in particular, and gardening followed in the wake of that. And quite quickly, that just became part of my default process of gardening. I mean, I did use chemicals. I did use chemicals right up till about 1990, but very badly, reluctantly, and and you know, it wasn't a big step to give them up. It was like someone who is a vegetarian who occasionally ate meat but didn't really like it, but thought they ought to because it would be good for them. 
you know. And it kept everyone else um, in the family happy, that sort of thing. Exactly, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and, and so having arrived at that point, I then, by about the late 80s, really started to read and study about organic gardening and, you know, compost making, about how you balance out pests. Because the one thing that everybody who wants to garden organically has to deal with is the slugs and snails don't go away. The aphids don't go away. They could be controlled. And and, and I think Longmeadow is a good example of how actually they, they're simply not a huge issue. They're there, but they're just not a big deal. But it doesn't necessarily... You have to be part of that process. And I suppose the simplest way of looking at it to start with is, first of all, you cut all chemical intervention out. You cut out herbicides, pesticides, fungicides. And then you encourage natural intervention. So you encourage predators. Now, in order to have a predator, you've got to have prey. You know, if you wipe out uh, all your slugs, let's say, with slug pellets, two things will happen. One, the animals that depend upon slugs for their food will go elsewhere because there's none in your garden. Two, slugs will come back. You never wipe them out forever. You know, they will come back. And when they come back, there's no predator. There's nothing to eat them. Mm. So then you have to use more slug pellets. And so it goes. And and that vicious cycle, organic gardening breaks. It says, okay, stop the wheel. Let Let the baddies build up a little bit. That will then give food for the predators. The predators will then build up and a balance will sort itself out. And that applies right across the garden at every level, whether it be the sparrowhawk feeding off the sparrows or the sparrows feeding off off grain or let's take, say, blue tits feeding off the caterpillars or or, or the aphids, um, right the way down the food chain to a bacterial level. You have to have the commitment and the confidence, though, that that's going to happen. So you do, you've got to understand the cycle and that the cycle's going to come with you, come to you why, at some point. And that's that's often the hard way to get started. You must have experienced that yourself. Well, I did, but I didn't, to be honest, I didn't regard that as a problem because, A, I understood it. And it's not complicated. Come on. You know, people aren't, if you can understand using chemicals, you can understand organic gardening. Um, and if you don't understand using chemicals, you shouldn't be using them. So either way, there's no excuse. You know, I have no, no patience with that. It's not that difficult. Um, what I would say is there are enough visible, measurable examples. I mean, Jeff's garden, my garden, there's lots of people who garden organically, you know, um, high grove. It, it's yeah, many national trust gardens. There are many, Absolutely. many national trust gardens. You can go and visit. You can see. You can go and see for yourself what's going on. It's not a contrick. It's not a sleight of hand. When we had children back in the mid-'80s, um, we didn't want to feed them food that we felt carried traces of noxious chemicals. Um, and in fact, by far the fastest growing and most dominant aspect of the food market, organic food market is baby food. Something like 90% plus of all baby food is organic. And that tells you, you know, it's human psyche that it's nothing to do with the baby food. It's to do with parents wanting to do what they can to protect their children. 
And I, I think food was was a huge impulse to go organic gardening to me. That that I wanted to grow in my garden seasonal, fresh, tasty, healthy food, and to saturate them with chemicals that I wouldn't dream of putting in my mouth seemed to be a contradiction of terms. It just seemed, and also it wasn't necessary. You know, it's you want to eat something that you really feel is healthy. I mean, there is a more complicated aspect to this, and I write about this, is that healthy plants that are healthy for the plant, healthy for the garden, and healthy for the gardener are very often at odds with what the traditional notion of what a good plant is. Because we are still in thrall to prize-winning plants, big plants, Plants without thaws, flaws. If you apply those criteria to food, to, to design, to, to how a plant should behave and should look, then intervention becomes logical and reasonable. You want it to be a certain height or a certain shape, so you feed it a bit more, or you cut back the feed, or you, I mean, as we all know with the flower shows, you, you cool it down, you heat it up, you move it in, you move it out, to reach this finite, measurable point that we regard as gold medal, perfection, best in show, call it whatever you like. All that is fun and harmless, but complete nonsense. That has nothing to do with plants or nature or ultimately good gardening. And more importantly, good health, health of plants. I think I say, uh, and I often have said, that a healthy plant is one that has adapted best to its given situation. That might mean it's stunted by modern standards. It might mean that it's it, it doesn't flower for very long. In other words, it has adaptability and resilience is the best measure of health in a plant and arguably in humans too. Mm. So that's what you have to take aboard. And I think organic gardening now has... Okay, so it's got less of the creed about it, though I think some people still feel that. But I think yeah. it's 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 and actually, and you've written in your in your new book, um, Complete Gardener, about this, you, about the fact it was slightly subversive, even when you wrote the book mm. back in two thousand two. Mm. Let alone mm. the sort of eighties mm. and 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 so on, when when perhaps Jeff Hamilton was broadcasting about it on Gardener's World. And you talk about leaving the lightest footprint, and you talk mm. about health, and those things are seem to me to be really resonating with where people are right now. We think about what three million new gardeners created through lockdown in the last year in, in the UK alone. And that, for me, is probably why organic gardening has sort of come back to the fore again. And people want to know more about it. Health is so, I think, fundamental to the way we view where we are and where we're going. It, it feels like a very natural way to to then perhaps consider your garden. I'd, Yes, no, I mean, I I wouldn't disagree with any of that. I I think that, I mean, clearly, the one word you haven't used is COVID, and and that has been, that has changed the way we look at the world, has changed the way we look at ourselves, Mm. and changed the fact that we can't take health for granted. You know, it's health is, now these are are cliches, but in the modern world, by and large, health is something that can at least, if it can't be ultimately managed, it can be managed to a very high degree. You know, whether it's your weight, whether it's your fitness, where, you know, people now wear fitness trackers, they measure their foot, how many footsteps they take. Well, also the other thing, which interests me hugely, and and I was talking with someone the other day, is now there is 
a definite connection made between inflammation and mental health and inflammation of the gut and mental health. So what we call, I mean, we all talk about mental health now, which is great, um, and we talk about well-being. But those two things are directly connected to your digestion and what you eat. And your digestion and what you eat is directly, obviously, connected to food and where it comes from. And, and, you know, your biome, your bacteria, we know that actually it's really good for you to have soil bacteria in your gut. And that people who garden and get their hands dirty tend to be healthier as a result, both mentally and physically, than people who only eat food that comes pre-washed and unwrapped. Now, I have to qualify that by saying the person who I was speaking to, who is a medical expert, was saying we know so little about this at the moment that, that there's limited forces. So if they know so little, I don't want to pretend to know more about it than I do. But it's so interesting. It's so fascinating. And that we are learning more and more that what we eat, where it comes from, even when we eat it, what time of year, you know, the soil type and what compost has been used and that sort of thing affects our mental and physical health directly, measurably. So clearly that's so important and people are aware of that. I think on a more general, less sort of scientific level, the anxiety that went with COVID, that goes with COVID, the, the sense of precariousness that means that we, everybody is now paying more attention to the immediate, simple things on their doorstep. Family, friends, weather, the garden, you know, the, the wildlife in the garden. Loads of people have discovered the pleasures of looking out their window or sitting in the garden with a cup of coffee. And I think that's all connected because why would you aggressively attack nature in order to have slightly better... I don't know, marigolds, primrose, you know, or, or, or broad beans, and destroy it. And I, and I also think, and we haven't yet talked about it, but we need to, is that the natural balance of the world, it's not just predatory, there's all kinds of other things. You are part of that balance. Yes, and people have been seeing the value of the space outside their back door. And they've yeah. been valuing seeing wildlife and they've been valuing yeah. seeing the seasons. I think the seasons have yeah. become as yeah. important. And perhaps yeah. that notion that seasonal eating, uh, whilst many people knew about it, of course, but seasonal eating has come to the fore. Again, you can see what you can generate and produce in your own garden. Uh, and that's a good thing because I think, again, it's part of our, you know, what we're feeding, how we're nurturing our own immune system. Again, try and have a conversation with most people, myself included, a couple of years ago about immune system. And it's it's... You know, that's that's not really day-to-day -day thinking and living. No, so, and I, I think people are coming to that. And, mm. and it goes back to this thing, and, and this is, I mean, the other point about um, organic gardening. Organic anything, by the way. Organic gardening and organic agriculture is, is you know, organic fruit production, it's all the same. Um, you need to start with a real understanding that everything is connected to everything. Every butterfly wing ripples through the, you know, through the world. Every footstep makes every part of the world tremble. And that you 
you need to own that as a positive thing rather than as a terrifyingly limiting factor. Now, one of the things I, I want to go back to, which you were talking about, is that the cult thing, because one of the great issues about organic gardening, both within it and without it, was this completely binary thing. You know, you're either organic or you're not organic, and if you transgress in any way, you're out. You, you're not organic anymore. I mean, I used to be much more militant. When people said, oh, I'm as organic as I can be, I say, well, what do you mean? You know, is it like, do you mean that you only use some chemicals? Or you only, uh, I mean, the amount of times over the years I've said, we are completely organic in our vegetable garden. Of course, we spray the lawn and the roses and, and everything else. Now, there are two things wrong with that. One is it, it denies this fact that everything is connected to everything. If you spray your roses, you're spraying all your garden. Mm. You know, the things that, whether it be a fungicide or, or a pesticide, they don't know that they can't go move from your roses to your uh, beans or whatever it might be. Um, and two, it's not understanding how the world works. It's interconnected. It's completely interconnected. And not. And the third thing is not trusting how the world works. Nature is very good at looking after itself. You know, I said at the very beginning, nature doesn't need man. Uh, we are not looking after it. And, and once you become humble about it and say, I'm a custodian of my garden, it's a creative artistic expression about me, but actually... In order to realize that, I have to work with the natural world rather than I'm allowing nature to in, but only if it behaves itself. <laughs> but of course, as you, as you said earlier, as a gardener, you are in the middle of this mix. You are very yeah. fundamental to how it works. Mm. So, so I think we ought to just maybe take a little bit more of a look at the fundamentals of what organic gardening okay. really is. I mean, there's, I think you said at the outset, it's, um, you know, it's, it's as much of what you're not doing. But, mm. um, you know, what are some of the key things? I think, you know, I think we ought to talk about soil. Well, we okay. ought to talk about plants, um, wildlife. Okay. So where would but you start? Let's, let's work it through. I would start by saying that uh, let's, let's just reiterate what you cut out. You start by saying, okay, from now on, under no circumstances whatsoever will I use herbicides, pesticides, or fungicides. Even if it looks like a disaster. They are, they are not available. You are living on a desert island where those things do not exist. Um, so that's number one. So you don't reach for them in an emergency. Number two is, is let's take soil as a starting point because it should always be the starting point. You realise that your soil is the basis of a healthy garden. If the soil is healthy, the plants will be healthy. So the next thing is you do not feed plants, you feed soil. Plants will take whatever food they need, they'll find it. The only time I ever feed plants is if they're in a container and either have run out of goodness, which is at least six weeks, you know, a good container mix will provide you all the nutrients you need for six weeks or if they are visibly ailing and then you feed them as little as possible and the feed you give them will be a natural feed either seaweed or comfrey or nettle which are very good they're very effective and you and, make those yourself yeah you make yeah. those yourself and i make them from plants i not the seaweed but the nettles and the comfrey i grow in the garden so the nettles and the seaweed are taking the goodness from my soil and I'm putting that back into plants that are going into my soil. So again, there's this circular, interconnected relationship with the soil as the 
absolute beginning and end of all health. You make a soil healthy two ways. One, you accept, you. I mean, the first thing I'd say to any gardener, whether they're organic or not, is find out. What's your soil like? What's your weather like? What's your climate like? You know, is you if you don't know what your soil is like, stop this conversation and go and find out. Come back when you know. So it's is it chalky? Is it clay? Is it sandy? Because you will not change that. That's a given. You work with it. And and you work with your soil just as much as you do with the weather or or this aspect. But you can improve soil, and there are two things you have to improve with soil. One is nutrition to a certain extent, and the real soil nutrition is the biome, is life, is bacteria and fungi, which is crude because there are lots of other elements too. Um, And they enable this incredible relationship between plants and nutrients. And it's that enabling factor that matters more than the actual nutrients themselves, uh, even though they are important. The second thing is soil structure. And, and the more you talk to soil scientists, the more you realize that soil structure is actually as important as soil nutrition. If the structure is right, so the, so the roots can live well, that the, the bacteria can live well, the worms, the, the fungi, that there is, and it holds water but doesn't get waterlogged, that it drains but, but not too fast. If you have good soil structure, pretty much everything else follows. And the best way to fulfill both those things is by adding organic matter. Now, organic matter, if you're lucky enough, could perfectly well be in the shape of horse manure or or cattle manure if it's very well rotted. But it should include, at some level, compost. Because compost is made from plants from your own garden. So you're recycling the nutrients and the bacteria and the life. And the bacteria and the fungi that makes compost is specific. It's not that you can't buy it in a packet. And that local connection is really key, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Your back garden is entire Mm. unto itself. It it is a universe. And, I mean, if you want to get boggled by it, there are at least as many creatures in your back garden as there are stars in the universe, you know. Uh, It's literally unthinkable. Um, So... By making compost, however modestly, you know, you do what you can mm. and adding it to your garden. And it might be, I mean, we don't have time to go into it, but there are good reasons why you can't mulch the whole of your garden with compost because the, the equation doesn't work out. So you can only, for instance, we use our compost, and we make a lot, as you know, uh, for only two things. One, the vegetable garden, and two, we use it as part of our potting mix. Mm-hmm. And the idea being is that food, what we eat, is needs to be as healthy as possible. Uh, and the plants that we're growing need to have a good start in life. So they create a bacterial and, and a fungal relationship with the soil which they're going to go out into. So by making compost, you are recycling not just the plant and the waste, but also the living uh, life of the soil. That inculcates health. Then you have the chance of healthy plants are great. Now, the second thing is that the standard pests, and I hate that word, I mean, I, you know, because it immediately assumes they're baddies. Mm. Oh, they're all not. the negative connotations you can imagine. Yeah, yeah. Pest, disease. Yeah. So, but whether it be, you know, black fly on broad beans or whether it be caterpillars or whether it be uh, slug snails, whatever, they will always go for two types of growth. 
The first are sick or unhealthy plants, damaged in some way. So therefore, growing a healthy plant is the best resistant. And the second is particularly lush growth. Is always, which is why you don't overfeed. When you overfeed, you're simply making your plant grow faster than it wants to because it has the resources. So therefore, it's prone it's to attack. Uh, and as an organic gardener, that's the sort of thing you're managing. You, you're, you're saying, okay, I, I, I've got slugs and snails in the garden. I'm never going to get rid of them. And you aren't. I, I could tell you why you aren't, but, but there's not time here, but you just aren't. Um, therefore, I need to provide them with as little food that I don't want them to eat as possible. They're there for a reason. They're eating all the, the decaying material and the dying material. They're doing a job. Hmm. You know, they, they're doing a good job. But, and that's what I mean. It's, it's, it's about you, the gardener, are, are enabling that balance. And, and also, you know, we all know, for example, that, let's go back to the broad bean example, they, the, the spurt of growth coincides with a cycle of the black fly, the aphid that comes through. So almost all broad beans will get black fly round about the beginning of June-ish, because that fits their life cycle. Actually, if you plant and sow and grow your broad beans appropriately, they will have set seed by then. They will have set flower. And they don't eat the pods or the, or the beans at all. They only eat the plant. So A, they haven't damaged your crop. And B, if you just pinch out the soft growth, which is why we pinch out the tips of broad beans, there is no food for them because they only like that soft growth. So you've managed that problem without any angst or loss to yourself at all. You haven't had to spray them or, or use them. Uh, and so it goes. But you haven't killed one of them. You haven't got rid of the black fly. They just moved on elsewhere. Mm. Observation is so key at this point, isn't it? It really is. And when, you, when you're trying yeah. to identify, you know, where issues may arise, it's, it's being on top of them and ahead of them as it is, you know, I, trying to tackle it afterwards. Me, um, as you know, uh, I spend an awful lot of my life writing. <laughs> and that's my main job. And then I'm filming. And then, but I think people imagine I spend all my time planting and digging and hoeing. Most of my gardening time is spent walking around the garden looking at it. And not, not thinking how wonderful it is, but looking at it in the same way as a doctor might look at a patient or a, a chef might just check a dish. Is it cooked? Does it taste right? Is the sauce thick enough? So five times a day, I will walk around just paying attention to what's going on. And that's what you have to do. And I'm gardening. That's as important as anything else I do. Mm. Um, it's that because and of course it's second nature to me now I, I never consciously think I'm going to go and have a look now I, I, it's instinctively and if I visit a garden I'm, I'm doing all those things it's what you have to, it has to become second nature because you you then can intervene gently with a gentle little prod rather than a muscular intervention before the damage is done mm. And I think the way that we've all been looking at the wildlife coming into our garden is, is, is drawing people into it. And, and so let's talk about the importance of wildlife within the, the organic garden. Well, okay. Well, the organic garden is in order to, to have your predators, you need a range, a diverse range of wildlife. And some of them are very obvious. We all know that song thrushes eat snails and, you know, the blue tits eat a huge amount of caterpillars when they're feeding their young. Um, frogs are really good at eating snails and slugs uh, in the garden. So 
you have to provide the habitat for them. Uh, and basically, there are three things that you need to work out. Any, any good organic garden will have all these three elements. The first is cover. Cover can mean whatever you want it to mean, but it tends to mean uh, trees, shrubs, and hedges. That provides nesting sites, it provides safety, it, and it provides literal cover. They can just hide and, and, and keep covered. And an awful lot of birds spend summer, at least, in the hedgerows. I mean, you've been to Long Meadow. It's alive with birds. But actually, you don't see them so much in summer. You hear them, but because they're undercover. That's number one. So every garden, however small, should definitely try and ramp up its woody cover. Secondly, water. Water, preferably still water. If it is moving, moving very gently, because that's rather an aggressive thing for, for many uh, aquatic creatures. Um, frogs, for example, need shallow still water in which to spawn. Um, but Water does two things. One, it encourages the amphibians that need it, like like frogs and newts or whatever. And two, it provides um, insects, so you'll get more bats, you'll get more birds. It, it's a resource. But water itself must have cover around it too, the edge of water you must cover. And the third thing that every garden should have uh, is some long grass. Uh, it, I mean... <laughs> As you know, there is it, it's a contentious issue whether our lawn should be long or short, and, and uh, <laughs> I regard it with with much more amusement than I do anything else. That it, it, it's a it's a good fun. But the important thing is whether you love a, a, a stripy, tightly mown lawn, have some long grass, and you don't need a huge amount. Actually, as little as a square meter is worth having. It will make a significant difference. Uh, but it's, it's probably easier to have it along the edges of something or, or a small area. And long grass on its own is fantastic for insects. It's also very good cover for small mammals, small uh, um, uh, reptiles, so and even small birds. And insects are the basis of a healthy the wildlife in a garden. If you don't have insects, you will not have healthy wildlife. So everything you can do for them. Long grass can, can be made into a horticultural virtue by treating it as a meadow. You know, you can just have long grass. And for many years here at Long Meadow, we had lots and lots of long grass, which we cut once a year. And we didn't really do any more to it than that. We didn't try and, and do anything more than that. Um, we are now actively planting into it bulbs, uh, perennials, annuals, simply because it looks beautiful and it attracts more pollinators um, and it becomes a gardening thing rather than a wildlife thing without in any way harming the wildlife. For a long time, and it's human nature, and I'm, I'm guilty of it too, the fluffy bunny syndrome always kicks in. You know, we have a hierarchy of, of animals that we think are desirable uh, and cute. You know, not many people would go out of their way to do a lot to save, say, a hairless rat, <laughs> even if it was one of the rarer creatures on this planet. But a dolphin or a giant panda or, or you know, hedgehogs get very good press. But the truth is, nature knows no hierarchy. Mm. You know, there, there is... Uh, I think, I think I, as you know, I'm very keen on watching birds and, and, 
you know, one of the things that you have, if you watch birds, particularly at a bird table rather than walking around the countryside, you become rather fond of individual birds and, and ones that keep coming back and you regard them as, not as pets, but but, but as part of the garden, you know. Uh, and suddenly a sparrowhawk swoops in and plucks your favourite bird, rips its head off, eats it, leaves its guts on the ground, and it feels like murder. But if your favourite bird had plucked a fly out of the air or, or a caterpillar, that's that's healthy, that's Norvie. Of course, they're the same thing. It's exactly the same thing. And, and we have to become a little bit less subjective and a bit more dispassionate about it. And so the wider the diversity, in order that they can eat each other and kill each other, uh, then the healthier the garden will be. And animals... Um, well, well, there are a few exceptions, but most animals don't kill for fun. You know, they, they will eat what they need and that's it. And it, that may well be, um, you know, some animals, it, it may not be killing each other. It may well be eating your plants. I mean, there are plenty of, of animals eating seeds and plants and, and, and what have you. But if you can, if you can think of insects, of worms, of of any animal that you do not instinctively regard as beautiful or friendly, as as important as any other, then you will be doing a lot of good. And and I think that's quite a, that's an important step for people to make. Mm-hmm. And I think one that people are appreciating, but, um, and I think one of the, perhaps the easier messages around this is actually about, um, and I think you touched on it in, in, in the book, is, is about the diversity of plants that you choose from. So your mm-hmm. your palette is, is is one that is there to be expanded. And, and yeah, So talk, us, talk is, us through what's important in that. Uh, okay, well, the first thing is, again, with all discussions about organic, it's so much easier to say what it isn't. That it is. The biggest disaster for any organic growth of any kind is monoculture. Uh, because you are asking for specific attacks, you know, an overwhelming series of problems rather than spreading those problems. So in your garden, avoid monoculture wherever you can. The more you can mix and match, the healthier they'll be, both in a general sense and even in a specific sense. Um, You know, there's no reason why you can't have tulips and lettuce growing side by side. There's no reason why you can't have cabbages in the border and so forth. Um, But if your allotment, say only has one vegetable on it, you're you're asking for trouble. It's going to happen. And every good veg garden knows about rotation, for example. So you don't have a monoculture in the soil, underground. Well, it's the same above ground. Just think think of it like that. The other thing is, as you know, there have been an awful lot of tests on the most suitable plants for pollinators and, and attracting pollinating insects. And actually what they found is it's not so much to do with where they come from, but more to do with their shape and accessibility, depending on the size of the proboscis and so forth. So we know that for honeybees, for example, nice, nice shallow plants. Um, uh, bumblebees uh, have got slightly longer tongues and can reach in. And then there are individual wasps and individual bees that have even longer tongues and, and can get in as pollinators. Um, so you'd need a variety of plants for a variety of pollinators at any given time. You certainly need to think of of pollinating plants for as long of a season as possible. Don't just think of it as something that's glorious in June and July and you've done your bit for nature and it ought to be jolly grateful. (laughs) You need pollinators 12 months a year. Ivy is a very good pollinator, pollinating plant in winter. Um, You have, you know, hellebores are great 
for queen wasps and bumblebees uh, coming early. It's it's really important to try and spread that out as part of this weaving in, this interconnection with the natural world. Don't worry too much about introduced plants, but always have a core of indigenous, simple, preferably species plants in your garden at any one time, because those are the most accessible for pollinating insects. I I think it goes back to this binary thing. There's no one good, one bad about it. Diversity means complete diversity. So you can have lilies from the Himalayas. You can have very, very frilly, multi-petaled plants. But only if you've also got very simple plants or plants that that have... uh, I mean... (laughs) What is an indigenous plant is a very complicated discussion, but it's essentially well, indigenous. Yeah. And I was going to ask, you know, what, what were yeah. some of the core, you know, two or three core things that you would always have? Well, I'd always have um, umbellifers. Mm-hmm. So uh, I mean, in my garden, I'm lucky that cow parsley comes in, but I grow, you know, I grow umbellifers, whether they be ami, whether they be um, angelica, whether we have fennel, whether we have dill, you know, maybe if you've got carrots, let them go to seed. Umbellifers are really good of any kind because they attract a certain range of plants. They are insects, they tend to be sort of hoverflies, for example, or, or certain types of wasp. And they're, they're both very good for predatory reasons and for pollinating reasons. Um, funnily enough, I would always have nettles in the garden because they're very good for certain caterpillars and certain butterflies. Um, so don't see it as a rough patch that, that you have to tolerate. But why don't you grow some shrubs and have nettles growing at their base or long grass or, or, or um, have an area where you combine the beauty of the natural world with your aesthetics of beauty of gardening as an intellectual and an aesthetic challenge. Make it a gardening challenge rather than a piece of sort of, um, what's the expression, virtue showing? You know, what do people do when they, they, they rather than displaying what a right-on person you are, mm-hmm. go a step beyond that and say, okay, now let's make it beautiful. If you are over 70 or maybe 75, it is quite a leap to join this discussion because all your background, all your training has been about neatness, orderliness. You know, your roses are pruned hard every spring. Your grass is cut regularly. Your edges are kept trim. Uh, weeds are a sign of, of neglect but on behalf of the gardener. Bare soil is a virtue. Um, and anything that is patently eaten or nibbled is something either that you are unable because you're incompetent to control or you have neglected to control. And worth turning all that on its head and saying, no, actually, that's bad gardening. I actually think, and I'm, you know, I'm happy to be quoted on this, I think we need to get to the point where that kind of gardening where man is trying to control as much of nature as possible is poor horticulture. It's not understanding how the world works. It's like trying to say that the only healthy person is the person who can do 50 press-ups. And you're going to take a test once a month, and if you do 49, well tried, but you failed. You know, we've we've all understood that there are lots of different... And and we need... It's what you were saying about the recent last year or two. We We are beginning to understand that our relationship with the natural world is complex 
and very often supplicant. We're not going to win. We can't dominate it. That is a 19th century and early 20th century idea of the world. And actually, we can do better than that, better in every respect, better by nature, better by us, and I think better by our gardens. I think we can make more beautiful gardens. So the good news for me now, after sort of 40 years or more of active organic gardening, is that instead of going from a sort of sub-hippie, astrology-loving, moccasin-wearing sort of uh, outsider who who didn't really know what he was talking about or doing and therefore wasn't entitled to talk about it, you now don't have to explain yourself. It's mainstream. What you do have to explain is how to make it work well. You know, the discussion should be about how are we going to do this, not should we be doing this. So you're optimistic that that message is landed. Yeah, I am. I mean, but in my experience, gardening at Longmeadow, where we haven't touched any kind of chemical, well, really since about the second year we were here, and we came here in 1991, so since about 1993, and the only chemical I ever used here was Roundup, as, as, uh, and, and I stopped using that uh, after a year or so. Um, we haven't had many problems. In, in other words, by and large, if you just trust the process to work, it's a, I mean, when you, if, I don't, if people have been ill ever and they, they take a regime of, of either a medicine or of diet or of exercise or whatever, you've got to give it a little while to work. You've got to, you've got, you know, it's not going to, you're not going to take the pill or whatever and then the next morning say, oh, phew, that's over. I feel great now. It takes time for mental and physical health to work. And that's a garden is the same. Uh, and I think it's about finding that right balance and feeling joyous about, excited about being part of it. You know, it's, it's not a problem. It's a challenge. It's a, it's a really good, interesting challenge. Um, and that, to me, that's actually, thinking about it, that's really what gardening is to me. Gardening is about about making this thing work. I always say that um, at very at my most intrusive, I feel like a conductor conducting the orchestra, and ideally, I feel like a janitor sweeping up after the party and maybe changing a light bulb. You know, is in other words, I don't mind being the dog's body. I'll do a little bit of tidying up here and there and you know, clearing away dead material and take it to the compost heap, but I'm not growing the garden. The plants are growing the garden. The garden is growing the garden. I'm just helping it along. And I think that's, that's really the shift in attitude. That's, that's the basis of organic gardening. Thanks for listening to the BBC Gardener's World magazine podcast. And for more gardening tips and inspiration, why not try our new magazine subscription offer for podcast listeners at buysubscriptions.com forward slash GWpod. You'll also find our special offer in the podcast pages on gardenersworld.com, where we also share more about today's themes. So if you've enjoyed this episode, please tell others about it and rate us in your podcast provider app. And we'll see you next time 